Welcome everyone to another episode of the Veterans and Ag Podcast, brought to you by AGD Consulting. I'm your host, Mike DeSop, and here we explore the stories and insights from the military veteran and supporter communities who are leading the way for vets in agribusiness, ag tech, and agripreneurship. We swap stories, talk ag, and show how the grassroots nature of the ag community can be a natural fit for the military veteran. Our guest this week is AJ Richards. AJ is a combat veteran, entrepreneur, and CEO for Sustenance Earth, an early stage software as a service marketplace that plans to connect consumers directly to local food producers, starting with the beef supply chain. His passion for ag stems from his family ranching background in Southern Utah, followed by an enlistment in the Army National Guard and a deployment to Iraq in 2005 to 2006. Like many veterans, AJ struggled to find his purpose again following military service, spending time selling pest control products, working in the oil field, self-development and fitness coaching, managing a USDA beef processing plant, and starting a CrossFit-style fitness competition. In this episode, AJ and I discuss the myriad of business opportunity he's been a part of, some of which unsuccessful, and the lessons he's learned from those experiences. It was enjoyable following a story during our conversation where he never lost sight of being back in agriculture. Sustenance Earth was born out of those experiences, as well as the struggles we all saw with the food supply chain during COVID. Listen in as AJ describes his path to the Airbnb for the food supply chain. Enjoy. Growing up in St. George, Utah, was fairly isolated from anything other than what, you know, the culture was around me. And uh, my family are five generations into ranching. Um, I joke that I'm the city slicker cousin. Had my mom been my dad, I would be a rancher. That's how it went, you know, but uh, my mom, because it was my mom's family that were the ranchers, well, she she married my dad and he was from the city. And so... Uh, I grew up with a tremendous amount of respect for the hard work that I saw my uncles and my family do. I got to do all the cattle drives and the brandings, but you know, being taken out of school to go do other extra ranching things was not in the in the stars for me, and that was very annoying. <laughs> um, but uh, so I was exposed to agriculture from that perspective. I got into the military uh, in 2018, actually dropped out of high school, got my GED and joined the Army National Guard there local in town. Um, School was not my forte. I hated school. School is actually the reason for a lot of the self-development work I had to do because, you know, back back in the day, if you were a dropout, that meant all kinds of things about you personally and you were just going to be a failure. Um, my brain does not work linearly. I'm not an academic. I, the academics don't work for me. I'm a creative. Um, I've learned as an adult that I just have to find the right people to put on the right seats on the bus and inspire them for the cause. And those who are skilled academically have surrounded me and they're brilliant and I'm grateful for them. It just wasn't my, my cup, you know, cup of tea. So got my GED, joined the army, national guard, uh, It was great because I got to basic training and I left this really small town of like predominantly white Americans and went to this melding pot of culture and race and um, beliefs. And it was a, it was a culture shock, but also a tremendous opportunity to grow. 
um, and to to understand that not everybody's the same. I went to uh, school to be chemical ops, NBC, NCO for my field artillery battalion. Um, when I got back, didn't do any of that. Um, and then we deployed in 2000. We actually first deployed 03. Um, we were actually finishing our last day of field training exercise in uh, Colorado, Fort Carson, Colorado, when they brought us all in from the parade field. We were 155 mechanized field artillery and, uh, you know, the paladins. And they brought us in from the field and they said, well, the war is over. And that was, you know, Bush had made the announcement on the aircraft carrier, the war is over and and uh, there's no need for heavy artillery. So um, you guys are already activated. So we're going to send you to uh, Fort Lewis, Washington to play our uh, play op four for ROTC and OCS cadets. And uh, oh, no. <laughs> so we spent the rest of the summer running around playing laser tag and had a blast doing that. Um, yeah. The guard at the time, though there was a rule that you couldn't deploy national guardsmen for more than two years within a five-year period. And so okay. we did six months deployment that first time, went home, everything was good. It was clear that the, the war was not over. And then in 2005, um, we got, uh, well, it was actually, might've been actually January, 2005, we got, we got warning orders that we were going to be deployed again. And uh, because of because we'd already been deployed six months, they decided they were going to deploy us for 18 months because of that two years in a five year period. So we spent six months in Camp Shelby, Mississippi, um, kind of spinning up for for the for Iraq. Uh, you know, I I kind of joke and say they were just making sure they weren't sending a bunch of civilians to slaughter because, you know, we trained one week in a year and two weeks in the summer and we always excelled. We did really well. And then in the National Guard, the thing about Guard that I've noticed is it's a hobby. And so when you when you have a hobby, you tend to do it really, really well because it's fun. And so we uh, we would always do these like war games and our our battalion in particular would always come out on top. So I like to I like to poke <laughs> the active duty guys a little bit on that. But um, we de so we deployed in theater to Ramadi, Iraq from May 05 to May 06. And, uh, you know, obviously, once you get to combat, you don't need an entire uh, battalion of artillery. So we would have, we had a rotation. We rotated between field artillery for, you know, each battery took a turn. So we did field artillery for a rotation. Uh, and when I say rotation, I'm talking a few months at a time, but we never left yep. the end. Um, Field artillery, entry control point security, and route patrolling through um, Mobile and Michigan through that area of the theater. If, you know, people were there; they'll they'll know those those areas. Um, we deployed with 500 people, and every one of us came home. God blessed us big time. I I I tell people, you know, we were soldiers, so it was the prayers of our family members at home that brought us home. Um, we had great men that I served with, but yeah, it was it was pretty crazy because. You know, Ramadi was, we were mortared all the time. Ramadi was not a quiet place 05 to 06. Right. The, the right. idea that we all made it home is really just a miracle. Um, we had one, we lost one lieutenant colonel in a very large um, uh, suicide bombing at the uh, glass factory in Ramadi. Um, I think 65 people were killed, most of them civilians that were signing up to be police. 
um, and we lost a lieutenant colonel that was attached to us, but the, the people that we actually were with from Utah all made it home. We had some pretty serious injuries, but no, no loss of life. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately, in many, like many people, that's not the case after coming home. We've lost some people through suicide, but, uh, but uh, yeah, so that was my time in theater. I did 10 years total in the military. When I got home, I ended up going to the, the Air National Guard in um, Arizona when I moved to Arizona and uh, became a security forces there. I did two years there and was tired of all the computer-based training and no field training. So I'm like, I'm out. This is done. <laughs> so yeah, so that's kind of like a quick, you know, down and dirty. I got out as an E5. Um, I, I made rank while in Iraq and then just stayed at that rank because I didn't settle down in one place and and then in, uh, was, yeah, was there, um, was there one particular experience or story that you often go back to from your time in Iraq that has shaped the way you view certain things? Yeah. Um, it's, it, you know, really what stands out to me mostly is one of the times we were in, I, one of the days we were there, we had a bunch of people send care packages. And so we went into, into a small village i mean villages being generous it was a few mud huts in the middle of the desert and we took these care packages there and there's actually a photo i have a couple of photos i'm playing soccer with the kids because one of the things we brought was a soccer ball and um you know i've got full battle rattle with an uh uh m16 and a 203 strapped to my chest and i'm trying to play soccer and but, right. but really what sticks out is and it's it didn't really land for me until covid I started seeing the face of the dad standing off to the side, watching in my perception, us taking care of his family, um, bringing food and bringing clothing and, and toiletries to his family. And it didn't, you know, I was a young man. I had a wife, I, my, I had a wife at home at this time and, and a five month old daughter, my oldest, but I was young enough that that didn't stick out. But then when COVID hit and the store shelves that I was hearing on the news were becoming empty and there was a real concern for providing for my family, not that I ever was ever worried that I couldn't. Um, I just kept remembering this guy standing off the side. And, and in my mind, it was this feeling of hopelessness that somebody else, other men have to take care of the role that I can't. And that's been pretty uh profound for me at this point in my life and 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 really a big part of why I'm doing what I'm doing now. I want to move forward into um how you've acted essentially on that on that perception but connect some dots for us from um when you left and you moved down to Arizona and you were finishing out uh, your work in the security space there because you've got something that's neither ag nor military in the middle of that. And I, I want to make sure folks kind of understand how you progress through that. Cause there's some lessons learned, I think from there also. First thing I did was start selling pest control door to door. And I hated my life. You know, I, I would go from door to door and think, man, I used to be a warrior and now I'm a pest control salesman. What I was having a hard time doing at the time I didn't know was finding purpose because the job was great. I made a lot of money, but I had no association to where that money would go to help my family. It was, it was the doing that was the problem for me. You know, it, the, the physical activity, I could see no value in the revenue I made as anything more than I'm selling pest control. And I used to be a warrior, you know? 
So I learned a lot of skills. I learned sales. I learned how to communicate. I learned marketing. I had a tremendous company that I worked for um, and did that for the summer. And then I then I started spraying the houses for the company. And then I left and got in the oil field for a short time. And then the, and then the owner of that pest control company came to St. George to take all of the salesmen out and go play paintball and do all of these things. And I'm the only veteran, the only military person, and I'm on the CEO's team and we just wreaked havoc. Like they just couldn't touch us. Cause I would ran, I would run ops and, and they just, it was just a slaughter every single time. Well, he called me after that and he said, Hey, I want to offer you a job to run our national sales center in Mesa, Arizona. We're going to take all of our hmm. yellow cells and bring it into one center and from for the whole nation, and I want you to run that for me. You, you have tremendous leadership skills. I would love for you to come down and do that. This was a Sunday, and I'm on my way. I'm literally packing up my truck to head back to the oil field. And I was like, nope, I'm not moving to Arizona. There was no way. <laughs> I'd visited Arizona, but I was not going to live there. Uh, and just before we hung up the phone, he said, can I leave you with something? And I said, please. And he said, remember that you will become the five, like the five people you spend the most time with. And that went in one year. So I thought, and mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, thanks, bro. Later. You know, I'm not moving to Arizona. Well, I'm in a man camp in Casper, Wyoming. And a man camp, for those that don't know, you go to work on the oil field, but you don't go home. You go back to a camp, like almost like a fob, literally in the middle of nowhere with all the people that you just worked with for the last 12 hours. And, you know, these are hardworking men. I, I, I have no judgment about these, these blue collar workers. We need them, but also these guys make a lot of money and have nothing to show for it because of lifestyle choices. And so that's what I was paying attention to. And, and there was an incident incident there where I had to like jump out of the way of a massive piece of pipe because somebody wasn't paying attention and, you know, would have killed me if I didn't. And in the back of my head, there's that quote, you're going to be like the five people you spend the most time with. And I'm with these guys from sunup to sundown for two weeks at a time. And I'm just like, oh man. So I called him halfway through my shift and I said, is that job still available? Mm -hmm. And he said, yep. Mm -hmm. So I finished my hitch, literally went home, packed up my truck and drove to Mesa. And, um, so it took me down to Mesa, Arizona. That's why I transferred from the Army Guard to the Air National Guard. So I could, could uh, you know, I, I didn't, the only option there was infantry and I was done deploying. Um, yeah. I didn't want to do that again. And uh, so I transferred the Air Guard. So um, I ran the cell center for a little while and then I ended up opening a CrossFit gym. Uh, I was the first CrossFit gym in Mesa, Arizona. It was called CrossFit Mesa. And left that company doing sales to do my own thing in 2013, 2012 when I opened the CrossFit gym. And then 2013, I started a head-to-head -head fitness competition called Rush Club. You can find some of the old videos on YouTube under Rush Club Nation. But um, what I did is I took CrossFit athletes, I put them head-to-head -head in weight classes to get, and, and they would compete for a title belt in their weight division. So it was like UFC meets CrossFit. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to question this idea that that CrossFit has, which is may the best man or woman win regardless of size. I said, no, let's put like with like, 
it'll be easier for the consumer audience to follow because it's just two people versus a field of 15. Mm -hmm. And I can program the workout specifically for them because what I'm doing is creating entertainment. I want to see neck and neck across the line finishes because that's what's exciting, you know, when you're watching a CrossFit event. Yeah. Well, I grew that over the next, let's see, 2013. It was like seven years, eight years. Every time I did a show, I put, took any money I made into the next show to make it bigger and better. Because I started with $40. I bought a roll of caution tape and some construction lamps, <laughs> put them in a warehouse because I wanted to make the fight club of fitness, you know, and put them in a warehouse and put them head to head. And uh, by the time I was done, we were broadcasting to a quarter of a million people live. And I would have anywhere from 300 to 900 people in house that had paid $20 to $100, depending on if they were VIP or general admission uh, per event. But I didn't know anything about business. I Anybody that had any little skill set I didn't have, they got equity and trade for their skill set. Mm. Um, so my cap table got completely destroyed. And I outgrew the people that I brought on with their skill sets very quickly. You know, you might know marketing, but it might be using Canva. Canva didn't exist back then, but it, right, right. Your marketing was Canva, you know, right, right. Now all of a sudden we're trying to market to a quarter of a million people and Canva just doesn't cut it, but I had no equity to sell to rent, invest and raise mm -hmm. the company. Um, the, the most important mistake I made is I didn't bring on a CFO. I didn't bring on somebody with finance. So we were given an opportunity to do a, an event on the beach in Clearwater, Florida for Veterans Day with Red Bull. That cost me an extra $50,000 that I had to get a loan for. You Up to this point, I covered the nut for everything I did and had some to, to go to the next stage. Um, we had a choice to do a show with Andy Frasilla of First Form in, in Missouri or on the beach in Florida. And had I done the show with Andy in Missouri, it would have been a whole different future for us. But I had the wrong people advising me. I didn't have the confidence to, to, to lead myself, to be quite frank. Um, leadership for me has been a hard, hard thing to come by, you know, confidence in leadership. Um, I don't know why I, I'm a, I'm a people pleaser. That's why I do know why. I'm a people pleaser. So even when I made E5 in Iraq, I gave everybody else the better shifts and I took the shitty ones because I didn't want to piss them off. And, you know, it's disappointing for me to look back on, but also I recognize the growth that, that's come from that. Um, so yeah, leadership because as, as a people pleaser was very hard to, to come by. So people advised me the wrong way. I listened to them and we didn't go to Missouri. Uh, instead, we went to Florida and then that ent ended up in a bankruptcy, which had us leave uh, uh, Mesa and move back home to St. George, Utah. So through this whole process, you're, you've never lost sight of the ranch as the ultimate goal. Nope. Right. How do, how do we eventually start to move into that and then yeah. ultimately into what you're doing now? I met some really incredible people in my life that, that, that uh, helped me get over, you know, mental blocks, mental challenges and things like that. The reason you know, the reason I'm still married to my wife, all of these things came from self-development. And so I was, I was doing that as a CrossFit coach. I realized that I'm doing a lot more mental development than I am physical development. And so I really kind of took that on. Anyway, when I left the CrossFit gym, I start and I moved to St. George, Utah, back where my family were. And I'm now working for a gentleman named Chris Powell, who had a TV show called Extreme Makeover Weight Loss. 
and I'm co I'm building his coaching program uh, for clients that were coming in through, you know, that, that show was a lead, lead generator for them. Um, and, and then I had 40 of my own clients. Well, that went away because I moved. I thought I was right. going to maintain that remotely. Um, there was some significant breakdowns in communication in that organization that, that, uh, ultimately I think it's anyway, um, that went away and I'm like, you know what? I'm sick and tired of trying to get into ag. Let me just go get into ag. So I called my cousin um, and I said, can I sell beef for your ranch? I want to build a direct to consumer subscription model. Can I do that? Are you interested? And he's like, yeah, let's do that. And so that's how I transitioned into ag was just to start building that it was called anchor brand ranch. So we started doing that in late 2019, 2020 COVID hit. And I called to schedule my next round of slaughter. And they said, we can get you in 12 to 18 months. And I went, oh, crap. You know, I've got subscribers waiting for a monthly subscription. And now I can't get them product. So we struggled for a little while. I drove around the entire state of Utah, anywhere that my cousin dropped cattle off that they could squeeze in. I drove around the state to pick it up. And that led to efficiency issues, of course, you know, mileage and fuel mileage. There's not enough margin in beef as it is to be putting, you know, hundreds of miles between pickups, uh, between processing plants. Also, the packaging was so inconsistent. I'm, I'm recognizing we have this really major problem for our country with our food supply chain. What if there is a place that existed like Airbnb? But instead of short-term rentals, it's local food producers. What if we hyper-localize our food supply chain again, just like our great-grandparents had? That was stability, you know? And so that's going in the my, back of my head. It, software is a service for that. And I went to a local guy in St. George who built an app called Busy Busy. It's a successful functioning software as a service. And he's also building this thing called Tech Ridge, which is like Silicon Valley, but for St. George. It's a master plan. So basically the biggest fish in town to tell me my idea sucks or not. And because I'm not going to waste any time, you know, I'm, I'm coming up on 40. I, I need to, I need to get something going to take care of my family. So I went and met with him. His name's Isaac Barlow, told him the idea. He's like, this is great, but you need to do a lot of market research. And so that kind of set me on this path that I've been on now my immediate thought was we need to create a vertically integrated supply chain. In other words, you should own as much of the process as possible. The ranch, the, the slaughter is significant and the um, distribution chain, that's stability. So what I was doing for my cousin, if I owned the slaughterhouse, we would have had no problems. We would have thrived because nothing would have been in our way. So I put together the concept of this vertical integration and started talking about it enough that I met some people that wanted to invest in a slaughterhouse and invest in this concept in wherever we could find. So first we tried to build something in Southern Utah because that's where I live. But mm -hmm. then a friend of mine sent me a link to a USDA plant for sale in Cody, Wyoming. I forwarded it on to these people that were interested. Literally within four months of talking to them, I was living in Cody. Like that's how fast they moved to acquire the plant. It was small, 35 head a week, which was perfect. But what I didn't know uh, 
because it wasn't even in my 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 mindset was that the remoteness of Cody Wyoming did not help facilitate direct to consumer uh, shipping. Like ninety percent of what we sent out was air, two day air, which is very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention the plant was old and antiquated and falling apart. The leadership that was at that plant was not good at all. I mean, I had to when I went up there, I said, I'm not running the plant. You need to have a plant manager because my job is all of the above that, you know, the, the whole system. I need to put the system together because I'm still working towards this software idea. Um, and it's funny too, because I called Isaac, you know, we stayed in touch, but I called him like, again, we moved so fast, four months. I called him like five months later when I realized the team I was with and Cody weren't in it for the right reasons and that it wasn't, you know, here we go again. I'm, I still can't settle down. I'm not where I need to be, but I learned some extremely important lessons about managing a plant. And so I called Isaac and I said, we have to, this has to be done. And I kind of laid it all out for him. He's like, I can't believe you're running a plant in Wyoming. Like I just talked to you five or six months ago and um, all the pieces came together. And this was, this was, you know, last year, last summer. And um, so we started and he says, okay, great. And, and I'm t- so now I'm talking about this software concept that I have, right? And he said, great, now I need a wireframe. I'm like, what is a wireframe? Like he just keeps throwing these freaking things in front of me that I'm completely clueless to. And uh, honestly, we'd be live now if it wasn't so much personal development on my end that needed to happen Mm. to actually execute this vision. (laughs) Right. So I went and Googled what is a wireframe. And then I went to Fiverr and I found some kid in Pakistan that could build me a wireframe for 600 bucks. And so I called Isaac back four weeks later and I said, I'm ready to present my wire. D- describe what this software is and what the business is around it. Yeah. So, so our business is called from the farm. Uh, when you open it as a consumer, it will geolocate where you're at and instantly populate all of the small farms and ranches around you. Anybody that's a food grower, we're starting with beef. You know, we, we got to scale slowly. We'll start with meat. Cause that's what I know, but in the future, it will be any fresh food items. And then you can filter what you're looking for from there. And just like Airbnb, if you're looking for a two-bedroom house with a jacuzzi, it'll take everything off the list except for that, you know, that that particular item or house. That's the same thing we're building for food. My goal is to restart an agrarian movement in this country. I'm sick and tired of seeing agriculture land being overdeveloped with houses. Because the family that sold that land most likely would have never sold it if they could have made a living off of it doing the agricultural work that they're doing. So you're still in the process of building building the software or the beta version now. Is that right? Yeah. So we're two months into software development. I raised okay. a seed round of funding from a, a great partner of mine. Her name is Brooke Entz. Um, she's a Southern Utah local girl. She's also a CrossFit. CrossFit helped her with gain her initial celebrity status. Now she's been in a couple of movies. She's actually in Thailand right now um, playing a GI Jane role for a, a military movie being filmed. So she's awesome, but she's a local local Southern Utah girl that that uh, believes in the same thing we are. She's trying to do the same thing. She's doing all these other things because she wants to be full-time in ag. And um, so she helped fund the initial seed round to get this thing going. So we're two months in development. Okay. And 
how are you, what are your thoughts on how you're planning to address the issue of um, first to a new platform, right? Yeah. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, maybe say more about first to a new platform. The benefit of a platform is that there's options and with those options, you can make better decisions around pricing and location. Yeah. But if you're a, a buyer or you're someone selling, somebody has to be the first one on the platform. Yes. So how are you thinking about populating the platform, you know, either pre-launch or shortly yep. after launch or you, if there's incentives you're thinking about, those kinds of things? Yeah, great question. Uh, um, so two ways. First, our MVP, we're going to launch where I live in Utah. And it'll kind of take this whole region because we can. And I'm now uh, chief strategist for Utah Beef Producers, which is a meat, which is a USDA meat processing plant. I'm here in Richfield, Utah, right now. The owner of this plant. Listen, I, I'm going to say this before I go into this. We have this saying here, and and I've adopted it in my life as well. Uh, Henry Barlow's the owner of this facility. He's a contractor by trade no meat processing experience at all has about 60 head of cattle, but no experience in this world at all. And he took on this multi-million dollar build in a space he knows nothing about because he knew it needed to be done. What's the throughput on the plant? Um, for... We have the capacity if we choose to do 200 head a day, we are okay. opening because of him and his other's career that he has He's not somebody that has to get in the black right away. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we're opening with a target of two of 20 head a day. And our first target is around 120. And if we don't ever go beyond that, we're good. Um, wait, wait, say, say that again, 20 head per day and then a hundred of what? 120 head per day is our first major target. So what, what, what do you mean by 20 head a day? Maybe I misunderstood. That's that. where we're opening. We're opening with a goal of 20 head a day. With a, with a with a downstream target of 120. No, no, no. Oh, just oh. processing 20 head in the door and out. If we can consistently do 20 okay. head a day, imagine if we were a much smaller plant that could do only mm -hmm. 20 head a day, mm -hmm. that's where we're opening. Okay. Our long-term goal or medium-term goal is to get to 120. And it'll still be a subscription-based direct-to-consumer great. Yeah, that's another great question. So something I've learned being in this space and coming at it from not being in this space is recognizing that the other threat to our country is the slaughterhouses. The small mom and pop slaughterhouses are disappearing as fast as the small farms and ranches. And the reason for that is the model they have is I will I will kill for you and charge you for that. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Well, if I make a thousand dollar per animal and I can only do X number in a week, there's my fixed revenue. Most places that fixed revenue with inflation is not enough to actually make sense or to be in business. So I've, I have thought about, and I'm not the only one now, I've talked to some many brilliant people. The slaughterhouse really is the spoke, is the hub on the wheel. And then we need to have multiple spokes of revenue to make this plant work. So that I, I describe it like this, a slaughterhouse is like a contractor's pickup truck. It has expenses. It makes you no money. It gets you to the job that makes the money. That's a slaughterhouse, right? So boxed beef, ground beef, those are two different spokes. 
um, direct to consumer. The offal is worth a lot of money. That's where most plants make their money is in the offal and the drop. Those are the things that we're doing. So we're thinking outside the box and saying, how do we use this as the tool to get to the consumer and make revenue? Um, we have some other unique ideas to work with local ranchers, but what we're trying to do is regionalize meat and its distribution. Talk me through what I would yeah. be seeing as a consumer. At first, I was like, you can't be on here unless you're the small farm and ranch. Well, the reality is there's not enough of them to serve mm -hmm. the size of consumer base that's going to come in. There's a there's a significant education process that has to happen to teach the old school rancher how to go direct. And unless they sure. have generations doing that, it ain't happening, right? Sure. Even my cousin, once I stopped doing that, even though he knows the value of it, he doesn't have the time to do it. So he, I left. He doesn't do direct suit direct sales anymore. So now our our rules are changed. We're going to allow small mom and pop meat processes or privately owned abattoirs and farmers and ranchers, they will have a designated icon or it'll tell the consumer, These, this is a slaughterhouse, this is a small farm and rancher, and we'll let the consumer decide, but they both need support. They both need help. Okay. Um, you'll filter, I want a, I want a small amount, like I, you know, 10 to 20 pounds. Well, that'll probably populate, you know, it, it, the, 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 the technology that's being built will be intelligent enough to say, this is what you're looking for. Here's who has it. Or it'll also say, there's actually nobody around you for that. Here's your next best option. What mm -hmm. I'm trying to avoid is not available or not for sale. So it may not have fit what you were initially looking for, but you can still not go to Walmart, right? And right. still support your local economy and your local producers. And how are you planning on gathering that, the information of what's available and then keeping it current um so that'll be through the tech right the the, the inventory management in the background it, it the the if you're the seller it's your store okay want, just okay. like if it's your short-term rental yeah how are you going to keep your house clean well if you want right. to sell you better have a cleaner come in before your next guest right okay so it's your store I, all i'm trying to do is create the marketplace and stand back and let consumers and con producers do business and the way we're managing that is you can just like Airbnb, you can rate each other. If a rancher has a bad experience with a customer, I want them to tell all the other ranchers, this person sucks. You probably don't want to sell to them because that'll keep the consumer in line. And if the consumer buys some really crappy product and they can rate the producer, that'll help keep the producer's game elevated. And we'll, we're going to allow that market to kind of self-regulate itself like that. We are going to have verification done in-house. That'll be an option. So you as the consumer, you can see any any food grower can be on there, but we're going to have food growers that have chosen to be verified. And that means I will have a team member go out, verify it, make sure that it meets the standards that we want to verify. I'm even entertaining some conversations with third-party verification organizations, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it, specifically on the regenerative agriculture side for that, that particular product. But, we, you know, we we'll take responsibility for making sure that you as the consumer can make an educated purchase, uh, 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 a verified purchase if you choose. And then we'll have, you know, just a saying, this person has not been verified. So you're going to really want to get to know them yourself. Right. Because I also don't want to create a system where you can only be on there if you're verified. Like if I'm an awesome ethical producer and I just don't want to spend the money, I shouldn't have to. I'm still going to earn a, a, 
a sales commission potentially off of your sale, depending on how this the system finally works itself out, because that's how we'll make revenue. But you don't need to pay to be verified if you don't want to. Okay. Yeah, that was my next question was how you all were planning to monetize it, but it sounds like it's some percent, small percent of whatever is transacted on the platform. Yes. And, you know, a lot of people ask, are the, are the farmers and ranchers going to be okay with that? Well, geez, if I'm bringing you hundreds of customers and they're local, so you're not paying for the the sure. shipping materials necessary. Like I sh when I ship two-day ground, that's about 20 to 25 per, per box in just materials, not counting the shipping label. If we localize it, you've just saved potentially 20 to $40 in, in those inputs my cut on your sale is far less than what that would have been. Understood. Yeah. So you're sort of, you're, you're going to need to kind of scale through volume, right? Rather than scale through yes. a larger percent of whatever sales commission you choose there. Right. Okay. Right. What challenges are you encountering right now, AJ, as you move through the software development process that you think may help other folks who are perhaps in a similar position? Uh, most of the challenges are internal, not knowing if I'm making the right decisions, right? Like how much of tech should I understand versus trusting my tech guy to just do it? I have a great team. They come highly recommended by Isaac Barlow, who is a part of my team. Um, so, you know, he's built a successful software, so I can kind of count on him. Um, so I'm just, I'm, I'm always listening and learning, like how much of this do I need to be responsible for, which I am. So like the other day I had a call with my developer and I said, I would like to bring on a second set of eyes to review the code that's that's not internal, you know, once a month or whatever you think that is. And he goes, great, I'm already talking to somebody. And I'm like, perfect. You're a fascinating guy, AJ. You've, you've been through a lot in a short amount of time. Um, you've learned a lot of lessons, it seems like the hard way. And so I appreciate you being candid and honest with those. Uh, to me, it's clear that there's a passion for what you're doing um, and that, you know, it also appears to me that you found what you were maybe missing, right? Early in your pest control days and early in your oil field days where you were moving around quite a bit. This feels like more of a permanent fixture uh, based off the way you described it. So I hope that gives some folks, you know, some level of comfort that even if you're bouncing around, um, you know, at some point, I think ag for a lot of military veterans can be the place where they find some roots. Um, I want to be mindful of your time, uh, but I want to give you one more opportunity to maybe discuss anything that we haven't talked about that you feel like we should have addressed or, or mentioned. Yeah, um, thank you. That would be our Discord group. Because you're an ag podcast, I thought it was going to be more challenging to get consumers involved, but they are waking up to wanting to know who their producers are. I'm having a mm -hmm. harder time getting the producers to want to go this route. So if somebody listening to this is mm. wanting to go that way, I have a discord group that I've started. Uh, if you go to feed the people by the there's a button that you can click as a farmer and rancher. And uh, once you fill out the information, you'll get an email with the link to that discord. I've already got thousands of people nationwide in there looking to get connected Hmm. This is an active service for me. I wanted to connect as many people as possible in case this never came to fruition and, and help them get connected.
This is an episode where listeners can draw a host of their own conclusions. Some may view AJ's path as a series of missteps, after which he coincidentally landed in agriculture with just enough insight to start Sustenance Earth. Others may view this as a story or a journey guided by faith, and that AJ is exactly where he should be by God's grace. And yet still others may view these missteps as the foundational building blocks by which AJ has learned invaluable lessons that will pay dividends in this new venture. However you view it, I think to me it's unquestionable that AJ's vision to be back in agriculture was never far from his mind. The platform company that will become Sustenance Earth is still in development, but when it launches, it's going to be competing in a crowded space filled with solutions designed to address the host of problems that have been drug into the light for judgment through, uh, through what happened in COVID. No one knows yet how all of this will shake out, but we wish AJ the best of luck. You can follow his journey on LinkedIn uh, at AJ Richards or on Instagram at A period J underscore Richards. He's also started a Discord group geared towards helping producers find interested buyers. You can register as a producer or learn more about the Discord group at feedthepeoplebythepeople.com. That's www.feedthepeoplebythepeople.com. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vets and Ag podcast brought to you by AGD Consulting. If you enjoyed this episode and think other military veterans and supporters would benefit from these insights and stories, please give us a review and share on social media. You can also find previous episodes and learn more about AGD Consulting by visiting our website. Finally, if you have any recommendations of future guests who are military veterans or supporters leading the way in agribusiness, ag tech, or agripreneurship, please send them our way. I'm your host, Mike Desa, and until next time, stay frosty. <laughs>